Okay, we move to chapter 10. And chapter 10, as I said, well, actually some time ago, is one of the four or five critical chapters. We had the introduction, of course. Chapter 4 with the semiotics, the basic uh, stuff about linguistics. Chapter 6 on the levels of signifiers. And then 10 and 11 where we start to get into what actually goes on as you interpret. That's why 10 is so critical. Now, <clears throat> the main point, and in your summaries in your papers, which were excellent for this time, really the best that we've had so far, everybody kind of caught on to what was going on. Let me try to, let me try to express this as simply as possible and put it like this. The first half of the chapter now, kind of two parts to the chapter. The first part about the two texts and the second one on intentionality. So let's focus on the first half now and just to summarize this part that interpretation is a, essentially a constructive activity in which the reader the hearer is busy processing the data and constructing meaning out of the data. It is essentially not what the modernist view was, which is you essentially have kind of marbles in a box and you either dump them out of the box or take them out of the box and there are these objective marbles that you take a look at. Now, as a matter of fact, a number of years ago, and it shocked me when I took a look at this paper, I saved this paper that was submitted by Dan Schlensker back over 11 years ago, uh, which I thought had a very nice um, summarizing way of putting this. Here's what Dan said. We must be aware of the interaction between the reader and the read. What is read? The reader's mind converts the marks on the paper into impressions based on past experiences. Then there's a cognitive construct assembly which involves grouping signifiers and meanings and discerning the relationships among them on level one. The reader's mind then finishes the paintings or pictures inspired by the signifier group. Well, that would be level two. This is done by consulting the brain's memory section and searching past experiences in order to complete the images as much as possible, filling in the blanks on level two and interpreting on level two. He goes on. The reader may move on to make inferences about where the author was coming from. That's level three. This consultation with the memory section is a necessary and unavoidable process which makes the reader influence what is read. That makes total objectivity in reading an impossibility. 
the author is automatically reading his or her own second text along with the text in hand. Now, now that's really great. Now, I think what he did is he started using a sort of a painting metaphor of completing the pictures and so on. But, that's, but going back to the memory section, that's all really very effectively put. So essentially then, and this relates now, I'm relating chapter 10 to chapters 4 and 5 with the notion of matrixing. So all I'm doing is expanding on the matrixing notion. That is to say, rather than saying that you have any particular signifier here, and I've got to matrix this with other signifiers in the text, I'm now expanding that, putting it on steroids, so to speak, and saying you've also got to have signifiers in the so-called second text as part of this giant matrix. That's what he meant by consulting the memory section. Thus, let's do this on level one and two. Thus, when you read and you come across Hina, now you've got to figure what does that Hina mean? Well, you consult the memory section, and you learned from Velts that Hina is probably not used for result. So you're going to use it as purpose or object or something like that. You go with somebody else like Gibbs. He's much more positive toward that. So if you've got that in your memory section, you're also consulting that. So you've got another, um, it, you know, it's sort of like you are like a giant dictionary and concordance or something like that. And when you see the stuff, you are putting that against what you already know. Now, this sort of makes a difference. Let's take a look at John chapter 9. Just take a look at John 9. Uh, verse 3, page 278 in the Nestle Allen text. Now, this is about the man born blind. Okay? 278. Well, it's actually verse 2. Jesus is replying in verse 3. So the disciples ask him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, henna to flus, blind he be born? Who sinned what? That he is born blind. Does that mean in order that he might be born blind? Does it mean with the result that he is born blind? You know, what are you going to do with that henna? Now, if you, if you see henna as doing result, you can gravitate toward who sinned with the result that he was born blind. But I'm going to want to go maybe in a different direction and say something like this. It's not purpose in this sense. 
that Mr. and Mrs. are there saying, hey, let's have a blind kid. Let's have affairs and sin in order that he may be born blind. Not like that. That would be stupid. But henna as purpose sort of like this. Something had to happen systemically in order for somebody to be born blind. See? So who sinned in order that it could happen that? Because God would, they're thinking, God would do judgment in order that he might be born blind. Now, whether that's the right explanation or the result one, it depends upon you as the interpreter what the possibilities are. And so hence we've got, this is why, this is why I call it, even though I'm dealing with personages here, a second text. Because your knowledge, values, understandings, beliefs, emotions, all play into that and are part of the total matrix of signifiers that are being interpreted plus conceptual signifiers. Now let me move to level two and I'll show you what I mean there. I thought of this last night as I was preparing for the class. In Luke 7, 16, the people react to the young man at Nain being raised from the dead. And one of the things that the people say is this. A great prophet has arisen among us. Now, why would anybody conclude that? That if you raise a guy who's been dead over a day, he's a prophet. I think you guys would conclude he's God or something like that, which is, of course, the second statement, God has visited his people. Why would you conclude that it's a prophet? Well, I mean, anybody answer that question? That's the only experience they've had. Anytime something like that has happened, it's been a prophet who is... Like who from the Old Testament? Elijah. Elijah or Elisha, right? So... Their second text has images of Elijah raising people, Elisha raising people, this guy raises people, and you have level two signifiers. You have events. See? You have events. So you take this event, and you take this event, and you put them together, and you have a meaning. Is there anybody in the room right now who did not make the connection to Elijah and Elisha? Anybody? No? All right. We have at least 15 liars. What? Oh, what? You didn't. Okay? Didn't. Yeah, you didn't, uh, you didn't make the connection. See, at that point, no, at this point, he's the only honest man in the room here. At, at that point, if you don't make that connection, it sort of looks like an odd connection for the people to make. See? And if you had been there, you wouldn't have interpreted it that way. So, so you are part of the equation for interpretation. So essentially then, when you are interpreting any text, 
And this, let's put this now down as text 1. This is the target text. Okay? Let's say like John 9 or Luke 7. <clears throat> Your part of the equation with signifiers and conceptual signifieds in that entire matrix. So this now becomes a giant matrix for interpretation. I'm calling this the second text because this one is seen as the target or the first text. Interestingly enough, a student a number of years ago said uh, to me, if you're interpreting with another text, let's say the book of Kings with uh, Elijah and Elisha, is that sort of a third text then? There's you, and then there's that text, and there's this one. And you can view it that way. I'm, I'm not going to dispute that. But you're the one reading that. I mean, that's not leaping over by itself. You're the one reading it, so it's kind of in you, and that's why I just limit this to two texts uh, in that way. So the critical piece in all of this is because of this phenomenon, there is no such thing as objective interpretation as if one can stand apart from the data, not affect it, and not be affected by it. This is then related to that material that I gave you guys earlier about quantum physics. Remember when we saw the video and we were talking about how whether you're looking or not, you get a particle pattern or a wave pattern on the back wall with the two-slit experiment. So it looks like the observer, in other words, here's kind of a physics way to say it, uh, the observer is part of the system. The observer does not stand apart from the system, which would be the definition of being objective. That you're standing apart, not affecting it, and not yourself then also being affected by the system. Of everything we do in this course, right, Oz? This is... The only thing you remember, huh? you'll fail. Uh, but of everything we do in this course, this is probably the single most important point. The non-objectivity of interpretation. And the reason that this is important is this is actually the foundation of confessional interpretation. When you interpret confessionally, you are not non-objectively imposing something in, instead of doing an objective reading. There are no objective readings. As we're going to see when you get to chapter 11, and some of you in your papers were clearly reflecting you had read through chapter 11, it's not that you don't have any presuppositions to bring, 
you stand apart, they don't affect anything. It's that you bring the right ones. That's the huge contribution of a postmodern approach to textual interpretation. Not that you're objective and non-involved. That's not what you want, because you can't do that. It's that you have to be involved in the right way. And thus, it's not like dumping or extracting marbles from a box when you do your interpretation. Instead, it is more like constructing something with tinker toys or something like that. Well, that shows my age. Uh, con constructing something with blocks or, or something along those lines. Now, of course, that immediately raises the question of the second half of the chapter. If you're doing all this constructing, you know, is there any intentionality that you can talk about? Uh, you know, it, is the author, is there any way that you can be sure that the author is getting something across to you? And that's why that's the second half of the chapter. Can we talk about determining intentionality? But that's the second half of the chapter. The first half of the chapter it's so important to deal with this particular thing. And, Oz, teaching moment, all right, teaching moment, just, just to anticipate here, just to anticipate, the idea is if in interpretation we interpret the first text well, let me stand in the same relation as the board. The first text in relation to ourselves as second text, then in application, we switch the thing around and we interpret ourselves as second text against the first text. So me, my thoughts, my beliefs, my understandings are, so to speak, thrust into that text to see what do they look like? What can I understand about myself rather than understanding the text? It's the same process. Let me use uh, Oz, something that's used in New York all the time. We could say then that all of our interpretation is ineluctably semiotic, right? It is inevitably, it is driven systemically that everything we do in interpretation is going to fit into this semiotic communications model. Thus, you can see the way I did that with the canon. I, I talked about canonical things in terms of how big a matrix are you using? Is there a key to the matrix? All that. It's all part of this same system. So, what I just said here in the kind of jumping around sort of thing is in 13 now, in the section on application, we're essentially going to just be switching around the direction of fit, if we may put it like that. Switching around the direction of fit. Okay. Uh, now, Buzz, you had your hand up. Oh, uh, my question was just... The text two signifiers, what are the signifiers of text two? They are your understandings, beliefs, um, uh, your grasp of material, your, um, 
your presuppositions, right? Thank you, uh, 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 Oz. Yeah, that, that's what it is. So it's you as also a processor of signs and so forth. When we're dealing with non biblical texts, just other yes. historical documents yes. in general, because you, that eliminates the confessional issue. Yes, yes. Do you just totally forget any attempt at objectivity, say, here are my biases and I'm going to just interpret it how I feel, or do you try and get as close to objectivity as possible, realizing that you can never be truly objective? <clears throat> Even as we are doing the Bible, okay, I do talk, you'll see this in chapter 13 on application, as what I have come to call a somewhat objective reading of the text. Now here's what I mean by that, and I think you do that also for biblical stuff. You try to read in such a way that you are rigorously self-critical, okay, and self-aware of what your biases are and what your feelings, your beliefs, your presuppositions, your understandings, your attitudes are as you're interpreting. I think you do that all the time. And it's true even if you're being confessional or something like that. Uh, that you want to be rigorously self-aware and self-examining. And honestly, and here, here I'm not kidding about if you do this, you're going to fail. Honestly, if you come out of this class being rigorously self-aware of every single interpretive move you make, you will have done a great thing as far as getting the essence of what's happening with hermeneutics. You ain't unloading a truck full of rocks. What you are doing is you are constructing meaning with all kinds of pieces of data. And that's what makes this such a difficult and tricky enterprise. Now, Ficken, in your summary, you said something very interesting, and I'm going to refer to that next. Furthermore, the reader can have an impact on a text, words on the page, not just by considering his or her life experiences, but also by being the one who determines what should be included in the matrix. The book gives us an excellent example in highlighting the story when Jesus turns the water into wine at the wedding of Cana. Well, should you include the fact of the purification jars? See, should you include, and you know, you could have added there, should you have included their size, for example? that they are like 60 liters or something like that. See, is that a factor? So what you put in as even worthy of part of the matrix is absolutely incredible. Or how about this? The fact that Jesus does this really early in his ministry. This is chapter 2. So, I mean, this, that's a very important point to kind of emphasize, and you highlighted that uh, right there. Now, Josh. What kind of a boneheaded statement was this? What is the role? <laughs> uh, thank you. I'm going to leave that for later now that I heard the choo-choo train. Yes. No, no. I'm, I'm going to leave it for later. I'm going to leave it for later. This is interacting with the class. Good. It's right here. It's right here, Error. You're going to see it. Okay. Good. Good. <clears throat> okay. Uh, Nick, uh, very interesting observation here. Now listen to this, guys. 
even if we had a completely accurate and completely agreed upon, so like text criticism or something, biblical text, we still could end up with different denominations of Christianity. And this is following on his sentence, the idea of reader becoming the second text, and this explains why so many different denominations interpret in different ways. Um, which begs the question, was there ever a chance throughout history for the church to stay unified? Was there bound to be disputes between readers of the biblical text? That's kind of the Roman Catholic attitude. See, so you have the teaching magisterium of the church, which brings that kind of unity to reading. All right? And that would be one of their points that immediately when you get other people reading and interpreting the text, now they would not traditionally have said, and probably even not today, would not have said stuff like there are various second texts or something like that. But you have it, it gets fractious all of a sudden. And people are all over the place. Nobody's agreeing with anything. And, I mean, it's, it's, it is, in fact, a great aspersion to cast in the teeth of Protestants that you keep fracturing all the time. But that's one of the reasons why you can solve this problem, if I may put that in quotes, Nick, you can solve the problem by having an authoritative second text, i.e., the teaching magisterium of the church. That's the Roman Catholic answer. Yeah, so very good. Very nicely done. Uh, Ozzy, it's a great reading on level three. You're wrong. Listen to this. Also, possibly a stupid question. Is there a reason why you started talking about a receptor reader as male and then changed to female in the chapter? If I were interpreting on level three, very good, and you use the subjunctive, which I really like, if I were interpreting on level three, I could make the assumption that perhaps you were trying to appeal to a female reading of the text or that you feel that women read more than men. Very interesting level three reading. It's completely wrong. How did you throw it yeah. Uh, this was sort of at the behest of the editorial people down at CPH as to some kind of an inclusive language statement because I was talking about singulars and I refused to say, you know, he, yeah, yeah, him or her, she, he, yeah, all that stuff. Right. Now, I think. Uh, I think in a future edition, we're going to probably go to plurals or something like that just to stop this. But uh, I had a discussion with them about just using he and so on like that. So your supposition is a logical level three reading. It happens to be wrong, but it's very logical. And it shows you, that's why I thought I'd read this paper, because it shows you how difficult level three actually is. Yeah. All right, now. Uh, we're going to move on to the uh, issue of intentionality, um, but are there any other comments or questions with regard to this? This is just so critical, and I will freely admit to anyone here or watching that this is a postmodern take on the interpretive process. It absolutely is, because modernism is objectivist, i.e., I stand apart from the data and I do not affect it. This, this is why 
it is absolutely critical to either sign on to this project or if you're not going to you know you kind of can't use it at all because there is a whole different way of understanding what you're doing when you're interpreting by the way in general even today huge numbers of people in Germany particularly would not agree to this many German scholars remained very modernist and objectivist in their approach Oz. so is this why when you have two different people reading like let's say a statement or something yeah and they've you know they've had different life experiences and then one person makes a comment and the other one says well that doesn't make sense you'll have that person say well you don't understand because you've never been through what I've mm -hmm, been through mm -hmm. you know what I mean? and that's yeah. how that works that's the second text idea. <clears throat> that's the second text idea and so you know for example this is why after a critical event in somebody's life, all of a sudden they read the Psalms differently. You know, parent dies, or a joyous occasion, or there's a tsunami or something like this. And then, you know, uh, suddenly stuff looks different. Different Psalms become more relevant. All of a sudden they might start reading the book of Job, had never read the book of Job before. And this is also why a repeated reading of the scriptures changes the, changes the look of any individual part. Why? Because after you've read it once, twice, ten times, your second text is different. And so now, for example, you'd read the beginning of the book knowing the end. So you've got to start asking yourself questions like, was the author intending you to know the whole thing when you started the book? So uh, that's why these are such huge sorts of questions. Yeah, no, that's very good. Yeah. Have you ever had a student uh, come through this class or a, a group that you presented this information to and they said, no, I just can't accept this postmodern view? And if so, like, what was their main argument to stay with this modernist? I don't know that I've ever had someone who's resisted it that specifically, but the general argument against it is that it's so subjective. Now, one of you, I've got the paper here, one of you brought up the thing, now who was it, uh, about it's a miracle we can do communication at all? Uh, yeah, yeah, Dan. Um, and that was really interesting. I wanted to read some of that in your paper. And you said, you know, it's a miracle anybody can get anything across to anybody. You got the diagram, you know, and you got that extra thing on the bottom with the, um, uh, let's just take a look at that, uh, page... Um, uh, 212, page 212, where you have the experiences are now part of the system. So in this communications model, at this point now, you have common experiences, then you have individual experiences, and so forth. And this is laid on top of what we had before. Previously, the other one, I've even written this up in the corner here, page 95 is the previous incarnation of this model, when you didn't have this other outer box of experiences there. And by the way, Dan, that's exactly why, your point is exactly why when I go now to the second half of the chapter on intention, all of a sudden I start getting a lot more conservative. And I start talking about, you know, you can really look at intention and so forth which a lot of postmodern people don't have any truck with at all. 
They're not looking for intentionality at all. Uh, but the fact of the matter is we can communicate. And one of the critical points here is this point that I make on page 213, um, right in the middle. And I do think that this is absolutely critical. We know that there is intentionality by being producers of texts, not consumers. So you don't find out that there's intentionality by rereading the Gospel of Matthew. You know there's intentionality because you write things with an intention. And uh, uh, I did this once, I'll have to tell you this, I did this once in an International New Testament Society meeting. A guy was, sorry, this is 20 years ago, a guy was arguing how there was no intentionality in texts and so on like this. And uh, so after he got all done, I said something that was, I guess you would say, blatantly untrue. I said, oh, Willem, so in other words, what you're saying is that we should be returning to the ideas of structuralism where every text has a specifiable meaning even apart from our perception. I mean, which is totally opposite to what he was saying. And he looked at me in this shock, and he said, oh, no, you don't get what I'm trying to say. I said, exactly. See, you're trying to say something like that, and you can't tell me there aren't intentionalities that are not only present in a text, but should be detectable in a text. I mean, for Pete's sake, people who don't think that there are intentionalities that can be detectable tell you this in documents that they write with the intention of telling you this. So this is why I say the issue of intentionality is really much more, um, is, is really much more obvious from a text production standpoint than it is from a text reception standpoint. Uh, I mean, another way, if you want to find out whether texts have a determinable meaning or not, and whether there's intentionality that can and should be detected, all you'd have to do is anybody who would be a prof who would say something like that is stop sending him his paycheck. And then when he makes an appeal to his contract, what's the intentionality of that? We don't know what the intentionality of that is. You know, all of a sudden, the whole thing changes when you have that kind of a document. That's part of what I'm saying in this chapter, that genre makes a difference. Now, let's, took, let's take a look at one uh, or two things here, and then I'm going to do your papers specifically. Let's look at the bottom of page 213. I've got this big X here that you can see in the text. What a text intended meaning is, however, is often somewhat elusive or obscure, and one can never appeal to it, the intentionality of the author, as a hermeneutical key to the interpretation of a text. Now, I want you to know what I meant by that. A few of you asked questions. By appealing to the intentionality, I mean as if you know the intention of the text apart from reading the text itself. So in other words, you give an interpretation of John 9. And then I say, oh no, 
we can't follow your interpretation, Josh. You're not following the intention of the author. You know, as if I just had a conversation with him or something like that. Now, one of you, and I've got that paper, one of you talked about what if you talk to the author, okay? And that's kind of a different thing here. But with reading the, the New Testament, Old Testament text, you, you actually don't have that kind of issue. Um, so let me go with the intentionality. What I'm basically saying is you've got to start out with the supposition that any literary document is not like drippings from an uncapped pen, just a collocation of things on the page. You can see the movement in general post-modernist post terms in that people would have, uh, now just track with me on this a second. <clears throat> Think of contemporary art or modern art back, let's say, 40 or 50 years. Where you have Jackson Pollock, people like this, or others who may have painted by, let's say, throwing paint onto a canvas. Or letting an elephant's trunk, you know, dip it in ink and have it go on, something like that. Different idea of what you think paintings are. In that kind of a thing, you are thinking that the paintings are a collocation of signifiers, possibly, which you then make meaning out of with yourself. You might say they're an occasion for meaning. Let's use that kind of phraseology. You would see abstract art as an occasion for meaning to arise done by you. Traditionally, we wouldn't have thought that. We would be thinking, rather, that the painter wants to say something. Okay? This is why this intentionality issue is very critical. Whether or not you think there is intentionality in the literary product, as opposed to the product being a collocation of signs which you then make meaning out of. In the last part, so. Let me, let me put it like this. Essentially, this book gets more and more radically negative until the middle of chapter 10, which is at the end of that chart on page 212. From that point onward now, I try to lift you out of the abyss. Because we've driven it down so far that everything looks completely relative. With the discussion of intentionality, this begins to reverse. Because I am now contending that there is meaning in texts. That there's an intentionality of the author. That something may be determinable. That you're not just making meaning as a private procedure. So this is the first move now with that a discussion of intentionality that it starts getting, so to speak, more conservative. Now, on the next page, page 214, I do talk about the fact 
that levels of signifiers are key with intentionality, genre, and time of composition. And you guys have a number of questions on those, just to repeat the basic point here in a sentence or so. I am saying that the issue, yeah, I do want to say a little bit more than that on the first point. The issue of levels of signifiers, to me, is the key to the issue of intentionality. If you don't have a concept of levels of signifiers, and you just talk about the meaning of texts, I think you don't see that, in general, intentionality with level one signifiers is way easier to determine than intentionality with level two signifiers, the deeds of a story. So you can talk about intentionality and determining it and arguing about it when you're arguing level one, like the Hina clause. But, as you pointed out, if you start going with the wedding of Cana, where you're arguing level two signifiers, what the heck is his intentionality, now you're really kind of more at sea. Let's actually back that up one more. Let's say, let's go back to that example I've used from Mark, that Jesus, it says, that after John had been handed over, Jesus went away into Galilee. Well, which would have been toward the area of Herod, Herod Agrippa's reign, not away from it. Okay, what is the meaning of that? Remember, we've talked about this. Is that Jesus being in your face? Is Jesus going to where he really needs to minister? Is Jesus not taking any notice of it? All right, you got all that. In addition, you got the issue of did Mark intend it? So in other words, we're dealing on level two now. Let's say you decide that Jesus going to Galilee was a kind of an aggressive anti-Herod move. Well, you know what? That might be so. Was Mark thinking that? See? I don't know. That was my point with saying on page 214, this paragraph 2, The meaning of level two signifiers is normally intended, but it's much more difficult to discover because on this level, matrixing is increasingly obscure, hence your point. Furthermore, it would seem such intended meaning is not so fully or completely exhaustive of the potentialities of the signifiers as is meaning on level one. For authors of stories do not think about and consider every conceivable matrix of deeds and words. You know, I think you could see that if you're reading something like uh, um, Winston Churchill's The Gathering Storm about World War II, and let's say, let's say, I'm making this up now, let's say he talks about some representatives of Germany talking to some people in, uh, in Oslo, Norway, and Norway was, uh, was an ally of uh, of Germany's in the Second World War. So uh, uh, they, they go and they talk to the people and so on like that. Well, all of a sudden, maybe Churchill wasn't even thinking 
that this connection actually reveals why there was, let, let's say, pro-German sentiment in Minnesota, in the United States, because there would have been this Norwegian connection. See, now, that could well be the case. You don't have to think that Churchill's thinking about any of that stuff, and you can still interpret on level two. So that's sort of what I mean by, depending on what level you're talking about, intentional, intentionality may be more or less possible. And then, of course, on level three. Huh, on level three, you can read on level three, just like you did, Oz. You can leave it, read on level three whether or not I'm intending on saying something or not. You know, I think I used this when we were discussing chapter six. Uh, you know, this incident that you'll see all the time at public lectures, a guy standing up and say, saying at the Q&A mic, well, thank you very much, uh, Pastor Schmidhals. I really appreciate very much your uh, uh, contribution and your presentation today. I was just wondering, in the way you handled that Genesis 1 text, uh, were you aware of the variant reading that there is actually in the Masoretic text, which doesn't really comport with what we find in the Septuagint? Now, what kind of BS is that? Okay, so if what, what's happening is the guy's trying to show how smart he is. He's trying to convey that level three message. You're reading fool with something like that. Jackass. <laughs> Nobody ought to be acting like that. See? So, in other words, you're able to actually read sort of in, against intentionality, and you're probably going to be right. But that's, but that's level three. That's level three. Okay, now let's take a look at some of these papers. Let's start with Mark Wood. Train to Oblivion, yeah. Josh, what is the role of the author's intention in interpreting a text? The role is very small. No, it ain't. It's very big. We're trying to figure out what he's actually trying to say to us. Now, it may not be easy to do it. You, you could have said something like this. Um, how obvious it is, or the ease with which we may perceive it is small. But you can't say the intention is small. We're trying to get to that. Okay. Who is this here? Justin. Can't intended meaning become really obvious in some cases? Yes, level one. Thus, when it says, no trespassing, violators will be prosecuted, we know what that means on level one. What might not be so obvious is the level three meaning of putting a sign like that out. Example, is the person uh, uh, just being, uh, what would you say, uh, uh, very uh, you know, aggressive and defensive? Or is the person fearful? See, that you're not going to be able to determine. And by the way, uh, Justin, uh, <clears throat> coming off your paper again, 
And this exactly is why this issue of intentionality is so driven in my mind by levels of signifiers. Anybody who wants to argue that you can determine intentionality will always argue with a literary production that is driven by level one signifiers, like a train schedule, a sign posted keep out, even a contract. The people who want to argue against it will argue about a novel, a mystery story, uh, maybe better, science fiction, metaphysical poetry. So depending on the genre, intentionality is more or less obvious. Okay, uh, Jonathan. What makes the reading of ancient texts harder to interpret, and what do you mean by saying that they are less open-ended? By that, I mean they are less reader-receptor-oriented. In other words, there is more a sense that, uh, well, let, let's, take, let's take an analogy to the world of art. I'm not thinking that in the ancient world you had people that would be just throwing paint on a canvas by hand and allowing you to construct meanings from what you see. Now, you can argue that maybe that's not right. And as a matter of fact, Jonathan, I would argue that that's exactly what St. Mark has done with his ending. See? But in general, it's probably less likely that we have these kinds of procedures. Oh, for example, I've never been to one of these. Have any of you been to one of these movies where the audience gets to vote on the ending? Okay, see, now I can't imagine anybody doing that in the ancient world, where you're thinking that it's so receptor-oriented, you get to the point in the movie, should she open the door or not? You know, well, suddenly this is all interactive with the people in the audience. You're not going to get that in ancient work. There was a hand back here. Yeah. I was just thinking, uh, isn't that also kind of an intention? Uh, if the artist is throwing random dots, trying to make somebody come up with their own meaning, isn't that an intention in itself? Uh, yes, but it's not. Um, uh, yeah, I, I get your point. It, it is, but there's not an intentionality of a message coming across or something like that. Yeah, well, the intention would be simply as an occasion for meaning, but you're not giving an intentional communication of information or something like that. Oz. It's like with, sticking with the art thing, like the way Picasso draws crazy pictures, but he has names for them because he can see what he's trying to draw. Mm -hmm. And other people look at it and are like, it looks like mumbo jumbo. Yeah. He, like, he still has his intentionality even though we can't read what he's trying to do. Yeah, uh, that's because, yes, I think so. And it's because essentially Picasso is still a modernist. Yeah, he is, he's still in that vein. And so you see these people with like, two or three faces. It's supposed to be simultaneous perspectives. By the way, I'm glad you brought this up. I heard an incredible, this is one of the best presentations I've ever heard in my life. A guy of two years ago, I think it was, gave a presentation at the Society of Biblical Literature on the relationship between Picasso 
and quantum physics. And what he was saying is that Picasso was trying to do multiple simultaneous perspectives just like we did with this business with physics where you can have wave and particle um, duality sort of simultaneously. It was a very interesting thing. So he was seeing Picasso as kind of this transition figure from modernism to postmodernism. Yeah, very good. That's very nice. Justin? No, oh, just, just stretching. Okay, yeah, Andy. Um, could it not be possible that even if an artist throwing paint on a canvas uh, doesn't have any intentions in and of themselves, but that there could be uh, subconscious intentions, so like using red paint for anger as he Subconsciously. Yeah. yeah. All right, now listen, that, that relates to, uh, hold on here, um, here, that relates to this paper. This was really interesting. Uh, this is Knippa. The description of every receptor as a second text is a unique way, a yet accurate way, of describing what every human being brings with them and does when they encounter a set of signifiers. I was also particularly struck by the notion that the intention of the author does not exhaust the meaning of a text, like especially on level two, let's say. Certainly not on level three. This is something I experience when I watch movies, visual texts. Each is made with some intention by its directors or producers. Well, okay. When I watch these movies, I often interpret them in Christological ways, finding in them themes of redemption, faith, and hope. I am quite sure that those themes were not intended by some directors from Hollywood. This example and the statement that we can never claim to fully know the intention of the author makes me wonder if it is possible to tell people their interpretation is wrong. Now, I'd like to comment on your observation particularly of seeing themes in movies that maybe weren't intended. This allows me to bring up in a natural way this footnote on page, is that on page 215? Um, yes, this long footnote number 10 about structuralism. And structuralism, I want you to take a look at that footnote, is the idea here, and it, it came from language analysis, and by analogy, was placed over onto sociological and literary phenomenon. It started with Saussure and with Claude Lévi-Strauss and others did it to anthropology. Um, and one of the ideas in that scheme, Michael, is the notion that people are essentially hardwired in a certain way. And there are certain issues that bedevil human beings, like the contrast between life and death, male and female, the here now and the eternal, you know, that kind of thing. And, and the idea of this kind of structuralism in myth is that these sorts of irreconcilable, notice how I'm going to say this, guys, these irreconcilable opposites are dealt with in structuralist terms by mediating them through myths and stories. So in other words, you cannot handle the opposition of life and death 
and deal with it, really. But you can, if in a story, someone dies and comes to life again. This is a way for you to satisfy emotionally and intellectually the irreconcilable about life and death. Now, in, in the light of what I'm saying, reread that footnote. Now, Knippa, here's the point. A structuralist would say that there are meanings in texts that the author may very well be unconscious of because he's driven by the hard wiring. See? And so that's exactly like what you're saying, that you can say, despite the fact, despite the fact the guy didn't think about that, I can do this. Now, for example, David Lewis has this terrific Christological interpretation of the matrix. When I watched this with him, I thought that there was a structuralist interpretation you can do that it's really about the irreconcilability of man and woman. Now, he hadn't seen that in the text, and he looked at it and he said, you know, maybe that's right. I don't think that the makers of the movie were thinking that. I think, Oz, ineluctably, inevitably, driven by the facts of the case, that's how it comes out. I'm sort of a structuralist, okay? Uh, I mean, let me just end the session today by saying, in structuralist terms, I want you to think about this. And this is the most amazing thing about the Gospels in Christianity. Not only is it true, not only is our confession a confession to die for, it is also structurally satisfying to the intellectual hardwiring of the human race. Think of this. You have in Jesus' crucifixion a man, God, innocent, taking the sins of the world, who dies not on earth where men come from, not in heaven where gods come from, but suspended between earth and heaven on a cross, mediating the divine and the human and the eternal and the temporal. A fantastic, in this sense, mythic, structuralist solution to the irreconcilable problems of God and man, sin and, uh, uh, sin and innocence, death and life. So, uh, you see, you guys are both raising these big questions about whether there is meaning actually in texts that the authors don't even know about. Very good. Thanks, guys.